<laughs> Thank you. It's funny, I had um, a, a class I was giving at our small sangha in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, and uh, I also had to have the um, GPS to find out where it was because it changed venues. So I'm sitting there teaching, and I'd forgotten to turn it off, and suddenly this voice goes, you are completely lost. <laughs> I thought, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, well, no, you are now lost, or something like that. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, the magic of the speaking phones. <clears throat> so welcome, everyone. Um, I'm really, really warmed and delighted to be here and to see many old friends and to hopefully meet new ones. Um, tomorrow and Sunday, Kitty Sorrow uh, will join me, and together we will offer a weekend um, of teachings and practice together. But um, tonight, I want to try and enter into some of the territory that we'll go into in more depth over the weekend um, by introducing sort of overview uh, of this book that I wrote and really um, at the core of the um, focus of the book is really an issue to do with, um, I think, which is uh, about what we're doing in this meditative process, which is a, an issue to do with, the, with a new paradigm which involves a shift of consciousness um, and how uh, that's a very transitional space and how the external, so-called external is not really an ultimate division between what we call internal and external but the so-called external world in, its, um, in the current crisis we're in extreme crisis really is uh, hopefully forcing this shift or quickening this shift, but at the same time also unleashing many other energies and um, destructive forces that are very concerning for all of us and very impactful. So this is a big subject, <laughs> um, and it really is about all of us and our lives at this time, at this moment, on a very, in a very fast-moving world, in a in a very um, uncertain, um, world, in a very uncertain world. <clears throat> but let's begin before we um, enter into some of these territories. Let's begin with a with our practice, which is um, a place of steadying and refuge, learning to return again and again. In each moment, whatever's happened, in any day, and you know, if we judge ourselves by what goes down in a day and what we feel and what our reactions are, we will easily write ourselves off. But one of the most important things to remember in this practice, it's always about beginning again, regardless. Um, and as we begin again, we realign with our core well-being, our core intelligence of heart, compassion, uh, and, and steadying, the, the process of steadying. So I encourage you to um, find a way of sitting there that you feel comfortable with, in your chair, on your cushion. 
So that beautiful chant you just heard is uh, tr very traditional and um, it's a long time since I've heard it and it's a long time since it's been used to invite a Dharma talk when I've been sitting in this position because uh, it's usually done in the monastic form. Um, but it's a very important um, chant and it's a very has a very important meaning. Um, first of all, there is within it the invitation. It's an invitation and a request to speak the Dharma. And this is um, very integral into, in the Buddhist tradition that, that there has to be an opening, there has to be an invite. There's something about for us to receive the Dharma, both in terms of physical teachings, which is one level of Dharma, but Dharma also means living in, in, in the way I'm thinking about it these days, a sort of very deep living intelligence, the intelligence of awareness, um, and for that to operate in our lives beyond our strategies, there has to be some sort of opening and invite, inviting beyond um, our what we think should happen and our particular ways that we interpret and control life to to invite and open into something else another intelligence another wisdom so implied in that is uh, this charm but also it's calling on um, rama sahampati sahampati is a very important figure in the in the buddha's life um, it was he came to the buddha the moment after the buddha was awakened fully awakened after the under the bodhi tree after his severe practices for so many years and his, his great journey that he undertook um, and then he um, practiced eventually he kind of gave up all the ways that had been familiar in the culture that he was within he had tried all these different pathways and trained with all these excellent teachers and excelled them all but he still didn't find the way that he really wanted to to understand the depth of his quest which was is there anything here in this world that transcends death that was his question and so in the night as it said of his awakening through the series of the three knowledges the third one being perhaps the most important knowledge which is the insight into into the deathless through seeing the depend, interdependent nature of co-arising phenomena and the sense of self that's shaped by that and then the collapse of that sense of self through insight, the non-identification with the, with the flow of phenomena was a, the, released him into the taste of what's called the amata dhamma or the changeless or deathless dhamma. And it was a very unshakable uh, insight and understanding and opening, irreversible, in fact. 
um, and it was very blissful for him. But he sat then under the Bodhi tree, it said, and with eyes gazing for a week at least in devotion at the tree. It was a beautiful image. And then um, practiced himself, just enjoying the bliss of his insight and awakening. And he felt very reluctant to teach. He was reluctant because he felt that there was so much ignorance in the world, that the world was covered by ignorance and human beings, the hearts of human beings were covered by this ignorance and they wouldn't understand the subtlety of what he had realized and therefore what was the point of trying to teach this um, excellent dharma. So um, it's quite an understandable sense of reluctance. How do you express sometimes this subtle way? How do you, how, and it's a question for our times, how do we turn around this trajectory that we're on collectively where we're so veiled in an, in an ignorance that keeps us separated from a deeper truth of our, of our, the truth of our, of our kinship with each other as living beings keeps us in these sort of, in this divided consciousness where we, through that division, we continually project um, the, the force, forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are sort of like a machinery out of control, destroying and chewing up everything uh, around us on this planet, on this earth. Um, and so how does, how does one respond to all of that? And definitely in terms of the theme of this evening and in terms of the moment after the Buddha's awakening, there was this feeling that it's not possible. It's actually not possible to do. <laughs> it's not possible to awaken. It's not possible to stop the flood greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not possible to save our world from its suicidal trajectory because this veil of ignorance is so thick and deep and we're so committed to it. So it's at that moment of, you know, and I suppose in some ways, maybe, I don't know, this is me projecting on, you know, who do I know what the Buddha felt, but maybe he just felt a sense of despair about humanity. Or, you know, he just felt, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, go and live in, in peace, maybe in the Himalayas, and forget it all. And I'm sure we've all had that feeling. I have it every day. <laughs> forget this struggle, this difficult world, why bother? And it's said at that moment that up in the Deva realm, Deva Loka, the angelic realms, these beings that have actually been very close to the Siddhartha on his journey and been sort of cheering him on and very heavily invested in his awakening. They knew that this being the, who was to become the Buddha had great potential. And they just they were devastated that at that moment when he'd actually broken through the illusions of Sangsara and realized this great truth, the beauty of that, that he was going to give up uh, communicating it. And so said that, that said then that Brahma Sahampati, Sahampati from the Brahma realms, the realms of creation and form, you know, symbolically bringing the subtle formless into the world of form, bringing insight into practical application, that he, he, he descended from his Davic realm and, and knelt just as we experience now, knelt before the Buddha, put his hands in Anjali, and said exactly those same words, 
You know, for those with a little dust in their eyes, who for want of not hearing the Dhamma would not realize the true deathless realm, please, for those, go forth and turn the wheel of the Dharma. Or something like that. <laughs> Rough, roughly. It's a while since I <laughs> since I was on that page. <laughs> but it's a very it's a very important um what there's two things that are well several things that are important about that. Um one is that it's important not to give up, even in the face of what seems impossible or difficult to communicate. And another thing that it's important that help can come from unexpected quarters. You know, that in this case it came from the Davic realm, from the subtle realms, which is very much part of the cosmology of, of Buddhist understanding and of many peoples actually, not just Buddhist, particularly older cultures maybe, that, uh, that the, ex- the experience of being within this um, human realm is not just what is seen through the senses, but there are other dimensions that we're interconnected with, including the dimension of nature and the natural world, including the dimensions, subtle dimensions, influences that interact um, with our consciousness, that are also part of the field of consciousness. So that, and that, that there's a response, there can be a response from these different fields that seem to be outside of our normal strategy, our normal ways of thinking. And, you know, actually, if Brahma Sahampati hadn't interceded at that moment, we probably might not be sitting here contemplating the Dharma two and a half thousand years later. You know, that was an important moment um, that the Buddha went forth and then dedicated the next 40 odd years to turning the wheel of the Dharma, which clearly was not an easy thing to do. It also represents, Brahma Sahamati represents this movement of compassion. He, why did he do that? Ultimately, because he felt empathy, he felt compassion, he felt like he wanted to help. You know, he also contemplated on the night of his awakening that one that lives that lives one lives unhappily, a being lives unhappily if they have nothing to serve, no one to serve. That we that the the route to happiness is to, to have something or someone to serve. And what can I serve? He was wondering, you know, he was an awakened being, he wasn't gonna go and be a butler for someone. <laughs> he wasn't thinking like that. You know, he was like, who am I going to serve in this world with its, you know, all these different kinds of power players and beings and all, all these things going on? What, what should I serve? And then he realized that what, he, what is appropriate for a Buddha to serve is the Dharma, is the truth. In the truth, to serve the Dharma in, in order to help living beings. So in fact, then the Buddha is serving everyone, serving nature, serving living beings, serving truth, serving a way of awakening, serving the way of harmlessness, serving the way of love and compassion and upliftment uh, of, of all beings, not just human beings, animals and 
unseen beings and humans in all sorts of walks of life, in all sorts of situations. So all of this is encapsulated within this invitation um, that we just heard. Yeah, so this, um, I'm grateful to be allowed to sit here tonight with you and to um, talk a bit about this book that I wrote and what it's about. And I'm grateful you've turned up to hear. <laughs> and uh, um, Once you've written a book, it's not always easy to go and read it again because, I don't know, one just sees all the mistakes in it. So, <laughs> so I have to confess I haven't really read it since it got out there. <laughs> But I did today return to some of it. I thought I'd better try and swat up on, on actually what I wrote in this thing so I can speak about it coherently to some degree tonight. Um, but it came about um, through a number of causes um, that were in place. One of them was a dear friend of mine, Andrew Harvey, who spoke here a few years ago, maybe three years ago. I brought him to New York Insight. He's a sacred activist, as he describes himself. He's a prolific author and a poet and a, a great teacher. And he was he's very critical in some ways of Buddhism and Buddhist practitioners and our introversion. Um, and he's very demonstrative about expressing that, you know, critiquing our, our sort of private enlightenment trips in the middle of a burning world. So he was quite, he's quite fierce, about that, you know, it's like, what are you all doing? <laughs> You're going to get out there and, you know, take this mindfulness thing out into the world and uh, do something. <laughs> so anyway, I had a friendship on and off for many years since then with Andrew, maybe three, four years, and he came down to our community in South Africa, and we, Kirisara and he and I talked together and then he invited me to write this book. He wanted me to to have someone. He was doing a series on sacred activism, and he had about five or six different authors, and he wanted me to write something from within a Buddhist frame, addressing the times that we're in. And I, And for me, in a way, I felt very right and ripe to write this book because I have been living within a Buddhist metaphor really quite deeply and profoundly and in a very committed way for four decades now um, and have considered quite a lot about Buddhist structures and Buddhist communities and Buddhist practice and the application of all of that into various different cultures and lifestyles and particularly at this time um, and so I guess I felt I had something to say <laughs> and would have a go at it you know. but I wasn't really sure how to to approach it and I knew I had to do it very quickly um, the book that Kitty Sara and I just wrote called Listening to the Heart actually took 10 years so I, I was used to doing something I mean, I'm not an author as such, so it's, it's a new territory. 
That's right. I don't actually consider myself very educated in that department, so I had to learn quite a lot uh, around this whole process of writing. But this particular book, there was a lot of pressure to get it out quick. And it came out just soon after I had gotten more involved myself in climate action and climate issues, which is in some ways quite a a new engagement for me. I haven't been thinking, I have to confess about this for like many years. You know, like I've always been aware of issues to do with the environment, but I haven't been that sort of pulled in that direction, mostly because of my, my practice was, first of all, monastic, which is very internal. That was my main training for over a decade or so. And that focuses more on shifts of consciousness than going out and shifting the world and having great faith in that as an offering. And then I found, Kilisar and I have found ourselves working in South Africa for over 20 years now, um, where we in some ways replicated something of what we'd learnt in setting up a small hermitage, holding retreats, teaching retreats, but then we did find ourselves in a country that was going through a huge transition. We arrived just after the apartheid regime had fallen. Uh, Mr. Mandela had been released from prison. He had become the first freely elected president. Um, and there was you know, incredible both euphoria and turmoil in the country. And part of that turmoil was a lot of eruption of violence um, and uh, fear, probably in the white community mostly, obviously, and then uh, also destabilization, uncertainty, um, and great hope. So it was a real roller coaster that we walked into the middle of, um, but it also what occurred very soon after our arrival was we found ourselves in the middle of the AIDS pandemic, which hit in the mid-1990s, at least in a more visible way, and then just sort of seemed to mushroom out in this huge way into the country and you know, impacting people that we knew, communities that we were working with, um, and communities that were really had been decimated from the affect of apartheid and colonialism that were very under-resourced, extremely under-resourced, extremely marginalized still, and very ill-equipped to deal with such a both sophisticated virus and a deadly impact. So we found ourselves not exactly becoming activists in the way that some movements became activists in in that country at that time, both taking on government and pharmaceuticals. But we found ourselves involved in supporting, um, initiating and fundraising and guiding various projects, which we're still involved with to some extent, which turned out to be much further reaching than than just, uh, I say then just, it was already a big deal to address the, the virus, the issues around that, but became more fully around developmental development, development work, you know, resourcing and all sorts of different aspects to supporting the local community. So as some kind of way that that sort of took us out from the, an introversion into engagement, 
And sort of fast on the heels of that, beginning to come into America, um, and then being invited to teach, and then invited into the the first um, real diverse uh, community Dharma leader program. Two or eight, I was invited to begin to think about that with um, Gina, who's lead teacher here, and Gina Sharp, and Eugene Cash, and Larry Yang. And I have to confess, when I first heard about diversity, I thought they were talking about wildflowers. So you can see, I was, I was, it wasn't that I was completely stupid. <laughs> I did know. I, did. I, I just, it wasn't a term that, was, that I equated with myself from my cultural background with racism and colonialism class issues. It's just a new term. But I also had a very fast learning curve that I've been on still involved with in terms of coming into this culture here in America, which is unique and, and yet not so different from the experience of being in some, in some ways in South Africa and then in the South and Tennessee or from class issues in the UK and so on. And I'm saying all of this because it gives you a bit of context um, for my journey and also context for the way that I've started to, you know, when really um, somehow the whole climate thing just, it was just like it came out of left field. I mean, it's obviously been brewing, and those that were switched on or scientists have been looking at this for years and predicting and saying, look, there's, this, is big, this is a big deal. This is going to take us into a massive crisis. But we just, you know, it's that ignorance. You just sort of go on. You know, if it's working, you just keep going. Even if it's not working, you just keep going. So I'm not sure at the moment when it really... Um, I mean, I, I remember obviously beginning to experience unusual weather patterns. And I remember being in England, um, in, a, in West Sussex, and going on a walk um, in the middle of a drought, which, you know, in England you don't think of droughts. And the land was so dry. I had this terrible anguish that, that this could all change. It was suddenly hit me, at a, and it was quite sudden, but it hit at a very deep level, a, a, a kind of sense that this, this was a really impermanent situation that I was looking at a countryside that I'd loved and, and had grown up in that was under threat. Um, and, you know, then I, I remember walking through Atlanta Airport about three or four years ago and, and just jumped out at me this book by Bill McKibben, the Earth Book, living in, what is it, gotten the subtitle, A New Planet, Living huh? Earth. Yeah. So I read that and was like, oh, God. You know, so from that moment on, really, I started to get more, re do research, do a lot of research, start reading, and then we sort of somehow moved into, very recently we had a couple of year, years ago here, and we focused some of that event around New York Inside. We had the climate march in New York, you remember, which was it was extraordinary uprising and meeting of so many different peoples. That was September 2014, and we'd, I'd, I'd worked with um, a group of uh, 
people in San Francisco to organize the the um, Buddhist representation on the climate train from San Francisco to here, which was an incredible experience. We had about 50 workshops on that train as we were going four days across country, people teaching all sorts of stuff to do with all sorts of issues. And it became very clear that as one looked more and more deeply into the issue of climate, we were faced with a karmic result of a way of being on this earth that had brought us to the point of having to face um, the facts that we have as human beings changed the very nature of this earth um, and we're doing it very rapidly to to now things are moving so fast i mean this is this is very recent history to move into this awareness um, of how fast this is moving now, the the affects of climate change to the point where actually one has to start to open to the possibility that we've set the causes in place for our own extinction. We certainly set the causes in place for the extinction of many species. That's already happening. It's already, we see it in, in South Africa. We see even the elephants predicted and the rhinos, you know, like five, ten years. They might, it's just unthinkable, but it's, uh, you know, we were there just recently. We had a group, gee, um, here, uh, quite a few people came from New York, Sangha here, and we went to the north part of the country. It was a very deep, deep, deep drought, and um, they're talking about some of the animals dying, some of them they had to cull, um, some of them they had to try and give to other places because of the drought. And then down the road from us, in the nearby town, there's water rationing still going on. You can get water from four in the morning till nine in the morning, and then that's it. And even in one of the very popular tourist areas you know, on the beach, there's water rationing from nine in the morning till five in the afternoon. It's been going on for months. And, you know, so, so there are cyclic droughts in that part of the world, but there's a certain quality of the depth of the drought that's unprecedented. And we know from countries like Syria, that's actually, which is now completely, a completely collapsed and bombed out country. And, you know, so it's horrific what's happened in Syria, but we know one of the causes of the unrest was a deep drought and uh, where sixty percent of fertile land was lost and eighty percent of cattle, which is basically you know disrupted and undermined any sustainability, and so we you know farmers marching on the capital for support only to be met with resistance, and then the beginning of what became this conflict conf- you know this sort of consuming this country and then of course on to now that whole area, that whole region which is one of the, the most um, one of the primary causes for the wars in that region is, uh, is due, to, due to resources, the lack of resources, water being one of them so the lack of water generating wars and conflict and mass migration, we had just this last year, over a million migrants, refugees, 
trying to leave that area to enter Europe, which we've been witnessing, mostly from, from, from that region, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, the, the top three countries that have um, produced the most refugees. And of course, we know our own part in that as Western countries, America and allies, Britain, of course, <laughs> helping, unfortunately, um, going, uh, being involved in that region for primarily um, to try and access the resources, the oil resources there, and devastating and decimating the, the, st- the st- not that stable anyway, but completely unstable now. So it's a karma cause and effect. Um, rippling on, and so one has to start to look. When we look at, you know, as the Buddha, first of all, you know, in, in my book, I try and use two templates around which to hang this discussion on where are we, what's happening in this world now, where, how did we get here, and how do we respond, and how does the Dharma inform that, um, and what ways... Can the Dharma inform that? And what shadows are there in Buddhist structures that inhibit us from a fuller, a more engaged response? So those two frames are both the teaching of the four truths, you know, to look at the symptom, to diagnose the cause, to look at the cure, and then to bring about that cure. And then the Buddha's life himself. So we can look at the Buddha's life for... as an archetypal journey to look for inspiration and for critical moments when um, we can learn something in terms of how did the Buddha respond and what was that journey about? What was the awakening journey that brought him into really a very deep engagement with the culture he was within that was transformative, profoundly transformative of, of that society? He didn't shy away from big issues, that's clear. So the first piece is to come out of denial. You know, the Buddha said as he was walking the marketplace when he jumped over his palace wall, as the story goes, and he was out there, um, and he realized he came across an aged, sick uh, person and then a corpse. It was a shock. And it was, but it was also the stimulation he needed for to leave the palace, as he also saw the fourth heavenly messenger, which was uh, a sadhu, someone that exemplified another way, a very, very different way of being and living. And so, so that those seeing the reality of impermanence, the reality of the impermanence of this body, was coming out of denial. And he said at that moment, the Buddha said that the vanity of, of youth, the vanity of health, the vanity of life left him. So in the same way, and this is where I, I make the comparison in the book, we are coming out of denial, although there's plenty of it about, about the nature of the earth body and seeing the same thing. We're seeing our earth body both as very, very sick and, as, and, and many parts of it as undergoing a collapse and death due to our activity. It's been reading about the collapse of the coral reefs, the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, and the scientists that have been observing this weeping 
I mean, they're getting to the point of, you know, they used to come out with this very scientific, slightly sort of clinical type language, academic language. And then they're putting more and more pressure to try and like, wake, wake, wake you up, you know, look. <laughs> and, you know, to the point of they're, they're weeping, weeping, weeping of what they're witnessing, this great decimation of the, of the coral reefs. This incredible, pristine area that we've all taken for granted is, is dying at incredible speed. Or the great oceans, you know, that there's, the, there's these huge dead spots now within the oceans where there's the acidifying and the oceans are warming. And the very, the very moderating systems for our biosphere, the great ocean and the great forests are being decimated. So they can't we're decimating them quicker than they can manage and regulate the, the, the heat. You know, the amount of heat that's released now into our biosphere is the equivalent every day of 400,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs. That's the amount of heat. And that was a few years ago. It's probably more. So there's, there's this momentum of causes from, from how we're living that's generating an unsustainable world. But what's happen, happening more recently is this is speeding up, going quicker than any of us thought. You know, it was like the feeling just a couple of years ago, well, this all might happen at the end of the century or maybe in a couple of hundred years. And now it's like, you know, you'll be lucky if, if, if we're not seeing some of this in a couple of decades. <laughs> so the speed, or they, they call these loops that start to kick in, feedback loops. And then it becomes very uncontrollable. And we can think, oh, this is happening to people in Syria, or it's happening to people, you know, in remote places, but it's happening to all of us more and more. There is no, um, you know, bubble, really, that we can keep protected within. And we shouldn't, really. We should understand, as, as Naomi Klein says, that our... The premise that we've built our economic system on, the capitalist premise, has comes from this idea of, of continual growth, comes from the idea of the plundering of inexhaustible resources, and comes from the idea of there are sort of sacrificial lands and peoples that we can plunder and we don't mind about them as long as it services us in our privileged worlds. So when we start to look at climate, we're starting to look at everything. We're looking at you know, the causes. As the Buddha didn't only look at the symptom, dukkha, suffering, but he looked at what, what brought this about, what brings this about, what mindset, what practices, where has this originated from? So, you know, I've, I've been looking a lot at, you know, issues to do with the colonial mindset, decades, centuries of Eurocentric colonialism that was transported around the world, extracting resources and using peoples uh, for, to build empires. We're still in that mindset. We're looking at patriarchal systems and religious systems, all of our religious Metaphors, including Buddhist, are shaped within a patriarchal metaphor that disembodies us. Somehow this sense of removing ourselves into a 
peaceful nirvana or paradise or heaven that's away from this earth, centuries of that, and then demonizing earthbound experience, sexuality, our bodies, and so on and so forth. So all of this becomes a very deep inquiry because we are the system. You know, this is all, these are all profound causes. And more recently I've been reading a a really uh, profound book which I recommend called The Dream of the Cosmos by an elderly um, Anglo-American woman. She lives in Winchester in England. And um, she's now about 18. She spent 20 years writing this book, but it's, a, it's an incredible exploration of consciousness, the journey of human consciousness, right from the earliest pre-remembered times, 4,000 and pre-that, in, the, you know, in cultures where what she called the lunar cycle, living in the lunar cycle, which is a very different consciousness, because in that cycle, which went on for millennia, far longer than our current cycle, which she calls the solar cycle, there was a very deep sense of being ensouled, she calls it ensouled, embodied within a web of life, that we belonged to this earth. We weren't conquering the earth, the earth, we belonged to the earth. There was a great sense of network and relationship within that. And then that this emergence of what she calls the solar consciousness, this individuated sense of self, which is being sort of ripped out of that ensoulment and that belonging, which is a huge trauma, which we still actually resonates at a very subtle and pervasive level, this displacement um, of belonging. Uh, and for the sake, in some ways, which generates this thirst and this craving to try and resolve this feeling of disconnection. So to explore the journey of consciousness itself, and I think all of, all of this brings us, you know, all of this is really about cause and effect, um, but it also brings us to the point of looking at, therefore, what is the journey that we have to take to reclaim a sense of both not only sustainable world, but an embodied way of being that is uh, healing, can heal some of this dislocation, that can bring us back into a harmonious harmony within ourselves, within our own embodiment, but also a a harmonious way of relationship with Mother Nature. You know, we have tortured mother nature really you know we have looked as science scientists we have looked at the objective world everything is an object to the mind that's unawakened everything's uh, out there and therefore there's a distance to the object this was called mano vinyana that goes out and creates the sense out of a seamless whole. It sort of cuts out a piece and gives a name and says, that is you and you are different than me. <laughs> Not realizing actually we're, we're interconnect, there's an interconnection here. When that is accentuated in an extreme degree, that you becomes abstracted from that depth of connection. And so we live 
in, in this frame of experiencing ourselves as divorced and alien almost, alienated from a world of objects, which are, even our own internal sense of ourself is an object to ourself. And it's quite painful. So we're always this separative consciousness. And if things are objects, and if they're objects enough, then we don't care about those objects. We can use them. You know, use those lands, use that earth. We can, you know, exploit those peoples. We can kill them even, because they're completely different than us, and we can project all our hatred and fear onto them. And then we can justify our wars. So what I'm kind of interested in, what I think the Dharma has a lot to say about is at, the, at a very subtle level, and we can look at this more of our weekend retreat, is how, what is this reclamation at the most subtle level of consciousness where we begin to shift from the subjectification of ourselves and each other into actually looking at who is the subject here? Who is this happening to? Because if we have some inkling of that journey, then it then it's, becomes a very radical shift of relationship to everything. And so I explore that in the book. Uh, explore it using the template of Dogen, who was a Zen master, who says enlightenment is the intimacy of all things. Enlightenment isn't removing yourself from all things into some abstracted, perfect place beyond the world. Enlightenment is where all things merge in your awareness. All things are resident in this one awareness. So if that is the case, what then does that say about our relationship to everything? This natural world, each other, So from the most subtle levels of consciousness to the ways we're living and acting, our reliance on fossil fuels, our reliance on animal products, which is also one of the causes, leading causes of climate destabilization, our reliance on um, or our lack of, of true, true equating, even economically, the cost of how we're living in terms of the natural resources and the impact on the planet. Uh, so exploring the, the, the causes from the mindset to the actions and then that in and of itself as we understand the causes begins to bring about the path perhaps of redemption. <laughs> you know, is there a way of Reclamation of redemption. We hope so because we like Hollywood endings. We hope at this, you know, it's like, can we get, you know, it's, it's like the, the classical movie. We get to the precipice and you think we're going to fly off, but there's always the savior that comes in, you know, there's always Superman. And that's such a deep imprint in our psyche. Superman's going to come. But unfortunately, we don't really have a very easy kind of archetype of the Superman. Unfortunately, it comes down to each of us, collectively. 
to have to, and it has to be a collective undertaking, because if we think about this on our own terms and, and us individuals and individually, it's completely and utterly overwhelming. I spend a, a lot of time being very, I don't say collapsed, but very uh, overwhelmed by the reality of what we're facing. I'm feeling, you know, these terrible feelings actually wake me up in the middle of the night like panic, and they're very panicky. And, uh, you know, this is an earth body. Because we live in illusions, we, we live in these illusions while this, this earth is being decimated. And we think this body's not going to feel that. So to feel what we feel as a way of linking us to the reality of what's happening, but not to... This is where the practice, I think, can really help. To feel what we feel without being completely overwhelmed is the edge of where the mindful practice can steady us. But it mustn't just stop at me being mindful for me. You know, the mindfulness practice is both internal and external. How can we then, and I think we have to challenge the mindfulness movement to then take us out from just our own happiness journey, de-stressing journey. I know that's, sorry, I don't mean to belittle. I know it's a very profound journey of mindfulness and the irrigation out into the society is very marvelous in so many ways. But we can't, we have to also be true to what does mindfulness say about mindfulness to the external? How how, to the political, to the social justice issues, to the history of what's gone before, to spheres of privilege, whether economic, whether racial, white privilege, and so on, these territories that we're exploring now. You know, all of this comes within our, the umbrella of being mindful. So this is the practice collectively, internally, that's, that's I see happening. Could perhaps quicken up a bit. <laughs> we don't have a lot of time. You know, pressure is on. We're at that edge. We're at the cusp. But there's also action. You know, the Buddha, and I look at this in the book, you know, to look, because sometimes there's this idea of being the retiring Buddhist, you know, that we should somehow be a bit removed from politics and from the mess of it all, you know, float above it. Um, but it's clear that wasn't the way of the Buddha. You know, he was very strategic, very um, well thought out. I mean, he had intuitive wisdom. He would respond. Sometimes he would say, um, I don't even know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, there was clearly, you know, these, you know, he said once to Sariputra, did you hear that teaching before that he gave? And Sariputra, his main disciple, one of the main disciples said, no, I didn't hear that. And the Buddha said, well, neither did I. <laughs> you know, so clearly, you know, he was the Dharma. He was a vehicle, the Dharma that moves through us doesn't belong to the Buddha or Buddhism. It's the doesn't belong to anything, anyone. It's the deepest intelligence that moves through us and we hear it when we're more mindful and aware and present. But he also really thought about how can I translate that into structures? You know, how can I create an order? 
or how, he didn't actually sit there and think, how do I create an order? He created an order in response to conditions, but he was very strategic about it. He went out to advise kings, generals, he tried to stop wars, he tried to, um, he, he um, denounced animal sacrifice, he upturned the caste system, he ordained, as we know, you know, so-called untouchable peoples in that systems, people that were slaves, people that were low caste, women, so on. He created an order that, that wasn't that that uh, diminished the power of the uh, priestly caste, which he got a lot of problems. You know, a lot of problems arose for him from doing that. But he wasn't he, he wasn't scared to do that, even when he. A war was happening, and his own peoples were slaughtered, actually. He went three times to try and stop. Then the karma was such that he couldn't. It it was too much. So even he couldn't stop a war, but he tried. That's the important thing. He didn't just sit there and go, I'm just going to watch my breath while this happens. He got up, and he he went, and he tried to, to negotiate. So that, to me, speaks to someone that was engaged politically, engaged in social structures, that was challenging, that was engaged in, in, even in very individual cases, turning around people that would have been, people would have given up on. This person is lost. So in all of that, we see an example. I just want to just mention that because... We have a lot to do. You know, it's not just a one-fold path sit. There's also right action, right speech, right view, right understanding. So what are we going to do? Because it's not, it is, yes, about these ultimately a shift of consciousness, because we can create another system, but if we still have the same problem of greed, hatred, and delusion of the human heart, we'll infuse that same system with you know, the seeds of, undermining ourselves and you know communism is a is a good in a way it makes a lot of sense to share everything or capitalism you know free market creativity but you know it's not so much in a way the systems it's what infuses the system so yes the shifts of consciousness the purification of heart the guidance of the Dharma around that, but still there is the work of having to um, explore and activate um, engagement. There's basically four domains. There's the lessening and the keeping of fossil fuels in the ground. This has to happen. All of this has to happen very quickly. I don't know, to tell you the truth, whether we can do this. (laughs) We have to keep fossil fuels in the ground. We have to remove the billions of dollars of subsidies that give an unrealistic economic base for our societies. We have to encourage divestment and carbon tax to come in line with what it really costs to live our lifestyles. And at the same time, not just crash everyone, hopefully, although, you know, if we, you know, if we could have been strategic about this when ExxonMobil knew already 40 years ago where we were heading, 
but still carried on plundering for the sake of profit only. You just think if we'd had that 40 years to strategically plan, of course we didn't have all the technology, but the technology is moving very quickly now, and we have the technology. So we need to support technology that can bring about the increase of renewables, subsidies for renewables, that can bring about education about renewables, that can bring about things like rapid transport systems, that can bring about massive investment in these uh, technologies, that can bring about an extensive and overhaul of our transport, uh, that can bring about recycling and buying not only of con- continuing this consumerist ideal of, of consuming new things all the time, but looking at recycling goods, maybe bartering goods, maybe different economic systems like in... Uh, in England, they started this alternative currency, which is spread into a few different cities, spreading around, spread in a, in a more alternative, quite Buddhist-dominated culture in, in Devon, where Guy Houses is affiliated, Sister Sangha, to the Insight movements here. And so people use these, what they call, topness pounds. So you don't have to argue about who should be on the, on the currency, because we can put who you like. <laughs> So then we have to also sequester the carbon that's already been released to, to reverse the, the, the decimation of rainforests, to plant forests, to remove, um, uh, to rem- remove the plastics from the oceans, to clean up the oceans which are dying, to legalize and, and fast-produced products like hemp, which can do everything that plastic can do um, and can, is biodegradable and also can sequester a lot more carbon. And then we have to also look at our own personal lifestyles, like to trying to look at consuming products in terms of what we eat and what the implications are, uh, to look at lo- local food-growing co-ops, moving towards plant-based diets, these sorts of things that we can engage with ourselves personally, collectively, and promote um, more globally. We can't do this on our own. We have to join forces. And so this last, uh, and I'll finish here and then just see if you have any comments, but these last uh, few years, it's been quite heartening and challenging to see these alliances being made. Um, I've been involved in a number of them. Bob here is from the BCAN Buddhist Climate Action Network, who's been involved in a number of actions and promoting engagement. It's been the One Earth Sangha, which is a new um, platform that was developed for bringing a, about a conversation and trainings and networking, which has been very successful, and, and many, many others, including a negotiation with various Buddhist groups, including Asian Buddhist movements, to bring about a statement for COP21 in Paris, which was... I landed up being involved in that, having you know, the time zones. I'm, one day I was like, drove to some car park. I didn't really have an online connection where I was staying to try and get a connection like at 11 at night to talk to someone in Hong Kong about... You know, it's just all this... Um, building and networking 
And none of that's been particularly easy, actually. Um, and it's not easy to sustain. It's easy to give birth to these movements, but it's not so easy to sustain them because we get tired. I feel tired. I'm going to actually take a sabbatical for a while because I don't know I'm going to burn <laughs> to try and really kind of reconfigure uh, myself in terms of how to engage all of this, this world and this time. What does it mean to practice the Dharma now? when we don't really have any luxuries of, you know, going to, uh, you know, hoping that we can avoid the impact of an increase, a world in crisis that's intensifying. Uh, what does it mean to do that as a community? What does it mean to do that globally? What does it mean to build alliances beyond the boundaries that we usually hold across faiths, across cultures, across peoples? What does it mean to support a revolution? Because that's what it really needs. Revolutions aren't usually very peaceful. We're in, actually, in some ways, that's attempting to happen. We've seen peoples out on the streets. It's not recorded often in mainstream press, but there's been in in almost all countries a great, great sense of disconnect, discontent, unsettledness, um, feeling that the system that we're all kind of wedded into is screwing us in, screwing us down, screwing us up. And, you know, there, we don't really know quite how to bring about a new system because they're so, so stuck at a political level, corporate level, oligarchic level. Yeah. So everyone's wedded into a system that we know is not working. But, you know, like Brahma Sahampati, at the moment, facing all of this, and the Buddha, at that moment, this world is full of ignorance, full of desire, full of greed. I should give up. As uh, There's always the divine impulse. There's always the space in the heart that's not corroded and eroded, that we touch when we sit in silence. We feel it the beauty of that, the potentiality of that, the radical nature of that. You know, as a great realized being, the Sagadatta said, the real comes to us in the form of the unexpected. We can wait and listen for that unexpected and, and follow it like surfing the wave. Because it's a speaking, alive universe. This isn't, matter isn't dead. This natural world isn't dead, it's alive. Peoples once knew that. They knew that the rivers, the mountains, the forests, the animals were conscious, alive and connected. We have to relearn that and respect that in ourselves and each other. If we can do that, we may cubic chance, we may have a chance of being able to leave some kind of sustainable world or something of what we've loved for those that are going to come after us. So, thank you.
for your presence. <laughs> I don't know if you have anything you'd like to respond with or whether we should... Uh, I realise I was supposed to sign books and I realise the time got on. very much aware, as I'm sure most people in this room have, of the devastation of the earth and the species and where we're at now. And I try to do my part and have been for several years, but I would really like to be in an alliance with other people. And I'm just wondering, I, I, I've been banished from Manhattan because I can't pay the rent and uh, I'm in debt, but I still support every environmental animal saving place on the, but I want to do something hands on. And I'm wondering in your book, do, do you, or do you know like how I could start something? I think I should start where I am in the ghetto where it needs to be, the word needs to be gotten out to people who may not be as aware as we are. Um, and I'm just, I don't know how to go about beginning a, a movement um, to get other people involved. And as you said, it's probably easier to give birth to than to actually sustain. Yeah. But do you have any suggestions? Thank, well, thank you, firstly, for all the work you are doing and have been doing. You know, I, I just think that's it's so, I mean, we can be there on our own, hacking away and think it's not, you know, that, that there's not, something's not happening, but I think that's so important to honor everyone's contribution. And I hear what you're saying, and I, and I always suggest you talk to Bob. You see just behind you, Bob, do you want to put your hand up? Bob is focalizing the Buddhist Climate Action Network and is affiliated with this Sangha, and it's very focused, it's, a move, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an organization, emergent organization that's very focused on action. You know, we know the philosophy, we know what's happening, we don't need to pontificate forever and ever. Mm -hmm. Let's think of what we can get out and do. So I would suggest you, you know, align with Bob, and Bob, give Bob your email, or anyone here that wants to, particularly from this part of the world in New York, you want to um, give your emails to Bob, and um, we work through Bob here. Okay. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you, God thank bless you. you. So, good night. So I'm wondering, as the time's getting on, whether we should just go to um, the book signing, or maybe, were you going to say, oh, no, no, no. Please do feel, um, you know, to, to encourage you to, to get the book um, and if it's a little expensive just to offer what you can I'm very happy more than selling the book for the book to go out and it does have quite a lot of um, information at the end about various networks and, and so on because um, I think it will help support and give you some you know um, some stuff to work with yeah 
Okay, so let's let's leave it there for tonight from me in Q and A. And then, if you'd like to, if you'd like to get a book, please do, and I'm happy to sign. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.